today on Against the Grain. What makes poetry, the writing or reading of it, so important to many people? I'm CS. We'll delve into the world of poems and how to approach them, and you'll hear from Allen Ginsberg, June Jordan, Lawrence Ferlinghetti, and many others coming right up. This is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. My name is C.S. Song. Today's program is devoted to poetry and poetic expression. You'll hear poets reciting and at times discussing their work. We'll present poets you've likely heard of and some you probably haven't. Iconic poets and up-and-coming ones, a potpourri taken from archival recordings and from readings we've solicited specifically for today's program. Is poetry needed? Is it necessary in these times? What does poetry do for our minds and spirits and intellects? Can poetry express something, do something that no other form of writing can? Questions, perhaps, to consider over the course of the hour. An hour of poetry readings, discussions, some Q&A, and a bit of music. We begin with Matthew Zapruder, who writes and teaches poetry and who spoke with me last summer about his book, Why Poetry? Matthew teaches in the MFA and English department at St. Mary's College of California, and from 2016 to 2017, he held the annually rotating position of editor of the poetry column for the New York Times Magazine. In Why Poetry?, Matthew Zapruder considers what poetry, and poetry alone, can do. Here's a portion of our conversation. So you write in this book that often in textbooks and in teaching, the formal elements of a poem, like rhyme, meter, and sound, are treated basically as enhancements of the message, of the so-called message of the poem. What do you think of this? Yeah, I think, it, you know, it's like I was saying before, people aren't really trained necessarily in poetry, um, so they don't know what to do with all the weird things about it. And they want to kind of turn it back into like just a content delivery device. And so there's a kind of hierarchy that's made in the teaching of poetry, like what's the message? Like what's the central thing being said? And then let's talk about the rhyme or the sounds or the imagery as ways of like, you know, how do, how do they enhance or deepen or, or, or help push along that message. And I, I kind of hate that because I think it turns poems into uh, propaganda almost or like advertising. It also just implicitly makes, a, like I said, a hierarchy where those things about the poem that are its formal elements are not as important as its message. And so in a way, if you were feeling in a slightly less generous mood, you might think, why bother with all that stuff at all. Why not just say what you mean? And I think it is a reasonable question that a lot of students and other people ask. They say, why don't you just say what you mean? Why are you complicating it with all this imagery and elusiveness and 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 rhyme and formal weirdness and everything? Like, what What are you doing? If it's really important, why aren't you just saying it? And how do you go about answering that question? I mean, what is the poet doing? And you've begun to already talk about this this hour, I think. What is the poet trying to do with language that differs from, let's say, making an argument in a kind of uh, prose form. Yeah, I mean, well, you just have to think about why would someone make a poem in the first place? And obviously it's because what they have to say is not, you cannot say it in prose. <laughs> That's the only reason to write a poem. and And so moving out from that reasoning, you can start to see that a poem does things that no other use of language can do. And it becomes quite obvious when you're looking at the poem um, that that's the case. Now, what that is, is a different thing, depending on the poem. It's not always the same. But if you had to generalize, or if I had to generalize, I would say that it is a way of making connections and of leaping 
from idea to idea and, and connecting ideas and thoughts and images that we don't usually put together, those things can be put together in the form of a poem in a way that makes new meaning. Whereas if you are trying to tell a story or if you're trying to communicate an idea, a single idea, or convince somebody of something, you're going to prioritize that over that other potentiality of language to make meaning. And so, so you know, that, that's a kind of very big, big idea that can encompass a lot of stuff. But I do think in the end that it's, it's mostly about that. It's about meaning making. And, you know, I've, I've found that sometimes when I talk about poetry, people think I'm saying that poems don't mean anything at all. But I'm saying the opposite. I'm saying they mean something singular that cannot be made, the meaning that can't be made in any other way. And when you emphasize this uh, associative movement or the, the connections that poems make, are you, do you believe that it's the connecting of ideas or facts that aren't ordinarily connected in our, in our minds, that that's part of the attribute of great poetry? Yes. Aristotle, you know, wrote in the first example of Western literary criticism we have that poets are people who have an eye for resemblances. They see connections between and among things that other people don't see. And the metaphor is the is the kind of basic mechanism of that. You know, it's taking two things that you don't usually put together and putting them together to make a meaning. And then once that meaning is made, it seems like, oh yeah, I can see that. But before they did it, before the poet did it, you didn't see it. And so that's, that is the kind of pleasure and, and meaning-making excitement of both making poems and reading them. I mean, metaphor is just one small example of the way that that's done, but it's, but it's once you are attentive to that in poems, you see it, it's just so bound up in, 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 in what poems do, you know, and, and, and that, then you start to see, oh, that's what is so um, exciting about these poems. It's not that they're saying some big message that, you know, I didn't know before. It's that they're ma- they're having me think about it in a way that's new and illuminating and, sh- and just kind of glitters with some kind of different perspective. Matthew Zapruder is a poet, translator, and editor. We were talking about his book, Why Poetry? We turn now to Allen Ginsberg, poet, activist, professor, and spiritual seeker. Best known for his poem, Howl, Ginsberg was a founder of the Beat Generation. Here's Allen Ginsberg reading his poem, Sunflower Sutra, in 1957. I walked on the banks of the tin can banana dock and sat down under the huge shade of a Southern Pacific locomotive to look at the sunset over the box house hills and cry. Jack Kerouac sat beside me on a busted, rusty iron pole companion. We thought the same thoughts of the soul, bleak and blue and sad-eyed, surrounded by the gnarled steel roots of trees of machinery. The oily water on the river mirrored the red sky. Sun sank on top of final Frisco peaks. No fish in that stream, no hermit in those mounts, just ourselves roomy-eyed and hung over like old bums on the riverbank, tired and wily. Look at the sunflower, he said. There was a dead gray shadow against the sky, big as a man sitting dry on top of a pile of ancient sawdust. I rushed up and chanted. It was my first sunflower. Memories of Blake, my visions, Harlem, and hells of the eastern rivers, bridges clanking Joe's greasy sandwiches, dead baby carriages, Black treadless tires forgotten and unretreaded, the poem of the riverbank, condoms and pots, steel knives, nothing stainless, only the dank muck and the razor-sharp artifacts passing into the past, and the gray sunflower poised against the sunset, crackly, bleak, and dusty with the smut and smog and smoke of olden locomotives in its eye, corolla of bleary spikes pushed down and broken like a battered crown, Seeds fallen out of its face, soon to be toothless mouth of sunny air, sun rays obliterated on its hairy head like a dried wire spider web, 
Leaves stuck out like arms out of the stem, gestures from the sawdust root, broke pieces of plaster fallen out of the black twigs, a dead fly in its ear, unholy, battered old thing you were, my sunflower, oh my soul, I loved you then. The grime was no man's grime, but death in human locomotives. All that dress of dust, that veil of darkened railroad skin, that smog of cheek, that eyelid of black misery, that sooty hand or phallus or protuberance of artificial worse than dirt, industrial, modern, all that civilization spotting your crazy golden crown, and those blear thoughts of death and dusty loveless eyes and ends and withered roots below in the home pile of sand and sawdust, rubber dollar bills, skin of machinery, the guts and innards of the weeping, coughing car, the empty, lonely tin cans with their rusty tongues, alack, what more could I name? The smoked ashes of some cock cigar, the cuts of wheelbarrows and the milky breasts of cars, all these entangled in your mummied roots, and you there, standing before me in the sunset, all your glory in your form, a perfect beauty of a sunflower, a perfect, excellent, lovely sunflower existence, a sweet, natural eye to the new hip moon, woke up alive and excited, grasping in the sunset, shadow, sunrise, golden, monthly breeze. How many flies buzzed round you, innocent of your grime, while you cursed the heavens of the railroad and your flower soul? Poor dead flower, when did you forget you were a flower? When did you look at your skin and decide you were an impotent, dirty old locomotive? the ghost of a locomotive, the specter and shade of a once powerful mad American locomotive. You were never no locomotive, sunflower. You were a sunflower. And you, locomotive, you are a locomotive. Forget me not. So I grabbed up the skeleton thick sunflower and stuck it at my side like a scepter and deliver my sermon to my soul and Jack's soul too and anyone who'll listen. We are not our skin of grime. We're not dread, bleak, dusty, imageless locomotive. We're beautiful sunflowers inside, blessed by our own seed and golden, hairy, naked accomplishment bodies, growing into mad, black, formal sunflowers in the sunset, spied on by our eyes, under the shadow of the mad locomotive, riverbank, sunset, Frisco, hilly, tin can, evening, sit-down vision. Allen Ginsberg. You heard him refer to his good friend Jack Kerouac. Kerouac was a novelist and poet whose books include On the Road and The Dharma Bums. Kerouac coined the term the Beat Generation. The following recording of Kerouac was included in a 1979 Pacifica radio program called The Beat Poets of San Francisco. What Kerouac was reading from may, I'm not positive, may be from On the Road, which, yes, is a novel, but there's no denying that the language Kerouac was using was in some ways inaugurating, was poetic. It introduced a new kind of literary rhythm, or you might say, beat. Here's Jack Kerouac. Now it's jazz. The place is roaring. All beautiful girls in there. One mad brunette at the bar, drunk with her boys. One strange chick I remember from somewhere wearing a simple skirt with pockets, her hands in there, short haircut, slouched, talking to everybody. Up and down the stairs they come. The bartenders are the regular band of Jack and the heavenly drummer who looks up in the sky with blue eyes, with a beard. He's wailing beer caps of bottles and jamming at the cash register and everything is going to the beat. It's the beat generation. It's bayat. It's the beat to keep. It's the beat of the heart. It's being beat and down in the world and like old-time lowdown and like in ancient civilizations, the slave boatmen rowing galleys to a beat and servants spinning pottery to a beat. The faces... There's no face to compare with Jack Mingers, who's up on the bandstand now with a colored trumpeter who outblows him wild and dizzy, but Jack's face overlooking all the heads in smoke. He has a face that looks like everybody you've ever known and seen on the street in your time. Sweet face, hard to describe. Sad eyes, cruel lips, expectant gleam, swaying to the beat, tall, majestical, waiting in front of the drugstore. A face like Hunky's in New York. Hunky, whom you'll see on Times Square, somnolent and alert, sad, sweet, dark, holy just out of jail, martyred, tortured by sidewalks, starved for sex and companionship, open to anything, ready to introduce a new world with a shrug. 
The colored big tenor with the big tone is blowing sunny stitch clear out of Kansas City roadhouses. Clear, heavy, somewhat dull and unmusical ideas which nevertheless never leave the music. Always there, always far out. The harmony too complicated for the motley bums of music understanding in there. But the musicians here... The drummer is a sensational 12-year-old Negro boy who's not allowed to drink, but can play. Tremendous, a little lithe, childlike Miles Davis kid, like early Fats Navarro fans you used to see in Espan Harlem, hep, small. He thunders at the drums with a beat which is described to me by a near-standing connoisseur with beret as a fabulous beat. On piano is Blondie Bill, good enough to drive any group. Now Jack Minger blows out and over his head with these angels from Fillmore. I dig him. Now he's terrific. I just stand in the outside hall against the wall. No beer necessary with collections of in-and-out listeners with Bernie. And now here returns Bob Berman, who is a kid from West Indies, who barged into my party six months earlier with Dean and the gang, and I had a Chet Baker record on, and we hoofed it at each other in the room. Tremendous. The perfect grace of his dancing, casual, like Joe Lewis, casually hoofing. He comes now in dancing like that, glad. Everybody looks everywhere. It's a jazz joint and beat generation mad trick. You see someone, hi. Then you look away elsewhere for something, someone else. It's all insane. Then you look back, you look away around. Everything is coming in from everywhere in the sound of the jazz. Hi, hey. Bang, the little drummer takes a solo, reaching his young hands all over traps and kettles and cymbals and foot pedal boom in a fantastic crash of sound. Twelve years old. What will happen? Jack Kerouac, a poet and writer best known for his novel On the Road. I'm C.S. Song, and this is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. Lawrence Ferlinghetti is next. He's a poet, playwright, publisher, and activist. In 1953, he founded with Peter D. Martin City Lights Bookstore in San Francisco. Two years later, he launched City Lights Publishers. In 1998, he was named the first Poet Laureate of San Francisco. Here's Lawrence Ferlinghetti. I'm indebted to Henry Miller for the title of this book, which I derive from a phrase of his in Into the Nightlife. It's used out of context, but expresses the way I feel about these poems. Each poem should be its own Coney Island of the mind, its own circus of the soul. Constantly risking absurdity and death whenever he performs above the heads of his audience, the poet, like an acrobat, climbs on rhyme to a high wire of his own making and balancing on eye beams above a sea of faces, paces his way to the other side of day, performing entre-shots and sleight-of-foot tricks and other high theatrics, and all without mistaking anything for what it may not be, for he's the super-realist who must perforce perceive taught truth before the taking of each stance or step in his supposed advance toward that still higher perch where beauty stands and waits with gravity to start her death-defying leap. And he, a little Charlie Chaplin man, who may or may not catch her fair eternal form spread-eagled in the empty air of existence. Lawrence Ferlinghetti, reading his poem, Constantly Risking Absurdity, published in his book, A Coney Island of the Mind, published in 1958. Ferlinghetti died on February 22, 2021, at the age of 101. The Pacifica Radio Archives doesn't provide a date of that recording, but indications are that it's from the late 1950s. We turn now to June Jordan, poet, activist, essayist, journalist, and teacher. The author of many award-winning books, she also taught at a number of universities, including UC Berkeley, where she founded and directed the influential poetry program, Poetry for the People. 
When June Jordan appeared on the WBAI show The Poet's Craft in what was probably 1974 or 75, she read two of her poems. This is a poem from New Days, the new book of poems, on the murder of two human being black men, Denver A. Smith and Leonard Douglas Brown at Southern University, Baton Rouge, Louisiana, November 1972. What you have to realize is about private property, like, for example, do you know how much the president's house weighs in at? Do you know that? But see, it's important because obviously that had to be some heavy building, some kind of heavy, heavy bricks and whatnot dig. The students stood outside the thing, outside of it, and also on the grass belonging to somebody else, although who the hell can tell who owns the grass? But, well, the governor, he said the students, in addition to standing outside the building that was the house of the president, in addition to that, and in addition to standing on the grass that was growing beside that heavy real estate, in addition, the governor said, the students used, quote, vile language, unquote, and what you have to realize about, quote, vile language, unquote, is what you have to realize about private property, and that is... You and your mother and your father and your sister and your brother, you and you and you be strictly light stuff on them scales. Be strictly human life. Be light stuff weighing in at zero plus. You better clean your language up. Don't be calling motherfuckers, motherfuckers, pigs, pigs, animals, animals, murderers, murderers. You weigh in less than blades of grass the last dog peed on, less than bricks smeared gray by pigeon sh**, less than euphemisms for a mercenary and a killer. You be light stuff, light stuff on them scales. Look out. This is called Poem It's About You, Poem on the Beach. You have two hands absolutely lean and clean to let go the gold, the silver flat or plain rock sand, but hold the purple pieces, atom articles that glorify a color. Yours is orange. Oranges are like you, love, a promising, a calm skin and a juice inside, a juice, a running from the desert. Lord, see how you run. Your body is a long black wing. Your body is a long black wing. I also want to share with you this late 1970s recording of June Jordan answering a question about whether and how her poetry had changed over the years. Well, I think it has changed very much, and and I really wasn't aware of it coherently until I try to put together the poems, you know, for the selected poems that just that have just come out. And by ordering the poems chronologically, particularly in the political section against the still waters, mm-hmm. um, I could see that uh, whether we're talking about the black-white uh, number here in this country or we're talking about Vietnam, um, that um, I think I have changed very uh, definitely speaking in the context of anger, I guess, or let's say a protest, political protest. And I think that you can see that in the 60s, for example, right through the end of the 60s, I think there was uh, a tremendous amount of rage. And um, in my work, I mean, that that manifested the rage I felt. And um, almost in hysteria, I mean, there's a tremendous effort at control, there's tremendous control in that poetry, you know, which was my way of counterbalancing um, a, an inc- inclination really just to scream or kill, you know. So, this, so it's very tight, rhythmically. It was almost unbearably um, tight, you know. It's like very tight jazz to hold it together. And um, um, I think that what was underlying that was a fear you know, in part, because as was true, I, I'm sure for many of us, in the 60s I found out many things, you know, not only as far as ourselves are concerned, meaning black people, but in the context of uh, the whole world, you know, mm-hmm. using Vietnam as a, as a fulcrum, um, that were terrifying to me. And, and I really felt that 
the powers arrayed against us and the you know, people um, that I care about um, just seemed um, immeasurably huge and complicated. And so there was this, you know, this kind of flailing of brown. And uh, I think now what you see is, is uh, in, in my work, uh, is I have a quite different head about things. I don't really feel powerless anymore. Uh, the surprise is gone. I'm not surprised by horror anymore. You know, the rage is there, but it's different now. And, and consequently, um, I think you can see in the structure of my work, um, there's a loosening of the control, technically, you know? I mean, yeah. there's more experimentation with rhythm, and more, sometimes I let a line just run on long and loose. Because I'm not, I don't feel I have to be like this anymore. You know, mm -hmm. I don't have to be myself a bullet. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. I can be a human being. Yeah. yeah. And because uh, I'm not afraid anymore. Yeah. Um, I really, I really, on the contrary, with all, uh, all that, that there is, you know, um, that um, is hideous in the world. Um, I really feel fundamentally uh, extremely sure uh, about winning about all of us winning. I just really do. June Jordan was, of course, intensely political. So is Craig Santos Perez, a poet, scholar, publisher, and activist. He is an indigenous Chamorro, born and raised on the Pacific island of Guam. Perez migrated with his family from Guam to California in 1995. He now lives in Hawaii, where he teaches English at the University of Hawaii, Manoa. Here is Craig Santos Perez in 2015 reading some of his poems. The first are drawn from public comments made in response to an environmental impact statement produced by the U.S. military in relation to a planned U.S. military buildup on Guam. I titled this series of poems, Fatal Impact Statements. This is a huge document to digest. It doesn't matter what we gain from the buildup. It's what we lose. Buenas. First off, thank you for the false sense of participation created by the comment period. The opportunity to vent, while completely meaningless, is at very least cathartic. The destruction of the land is a sign of disrespect to our ancestors. How much sewage and solid waste can our island expect? Where are the comments to these issues sent? Who sees them? Will the public see any of these comments? My main reason for being against the military buildup is for what happened in Okinawa. A girl got raped. The lives of the Native Ocean inhabitants are more important than a parking lot for warships. They can't even pronounce the names of the villages right for God's sake. I don't think I'm allowed to say that I'm against the military buildup because of my parents are for the buildup and my dad is in the Air Force. I cannot sit back any longer. We as a whole need to stop being shoved around and pushed back. What scares me is that I am a young female that is a target to those men who will be arriving. What if the people on Guam get outnumbered? I request an extension of the public commenting period. And if they do take the lands that they want, then what will the meaning of Guam be? Craig Santos Perez reading from his book of poetry from unincorporated territory, Guma. Craig, can you read another poem from this volume? Sure, I can read a, a short piece. It's from a series called Sounding Lines. And these are... are poems kind of explore different memories that I've had. This particular poem I'm going to read is related to time and time zones. Sounding lines. Remember just the timetable mom made and taped to the fridge. When it is 2 p.m. here, it is 8 a.m. the next day there. Mom always talking story on the phone, long distance counting minutes. When it is 11 a.m. there, it is 5 p.m. the day before here. Her voice, transoceanic cables, pool sounding lines between island and continent. When it is 6 p.m. here, it is 12 p.m. the next day there. She shows us how to dial, 
1671, then the number. Rotary, vocal cords, pulse, when it is 1 a.m. here, it is 7 p.m. the next day, passes into years. Fewer and fewer calls, lost connections, avian silence. I want to remember when we once belonged. The poet Craig Santos Perez joining me in studio in the fall of 2015. I'm CS, and this is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. What say we take a break from all this spoken word? You might have heard June Jordan earlier this hour referring to her 1960s poems, or some of them, as very tight jazz, at least in a rhythmic sense. Many connections have been made between poetry and jazz, and you may detect some in this piece performed by Sonny Rollins and his band at the Village Vanguard in New York City's Greenwich Village. The year was 1957. We'd like to feature Wilbur right now in a little thing we hope you'll all be familiar with softly as in a morning sunrise. sounds of Sonny Rollins, the saxophonist who was recently called jazz's greatest living improviser. He is 89 years young. We turn now to several contemporary poets who responded to our request to contribute readings to today's program. We start with Meenal Hajratwala. Meenal's books include Bountiful Instructions for Enlightenment, which is a book of poetry, and the award-winning epic Leaving India, My Family's Journey from Five Villages to Five Continents. I asked Meenal to read two poems for us, and she obliged. This is a poem that I wrote at Tassajara Zen Center, and it came out of my experience meditating there and having a lot of rage come up and sitting with my rage. 
and uh, it refers to the four states of unboundedness in Vipassana Buddhism and Zen Buddhism, which are equanimity, compassion, loving kindness, and sympathetic joy. So, abode. In the house of love, save the best room for rage. Give it the softest, warmest blankets, sweet, endless light of the plains, a stack of dishes to break. Tell it to make itself at home. It will anyway. Let it roam through the dungeons where compassion wrestles suffering into chains. Let it mess up the kitchen where sympathetic joy whips up confections and spaghettis for all beings. Let it piss in the pots that equanimity and generosity disinfect daily on their knees. Let it whirl through the study, ruffling the rondos that loving kindness composes each dawn. Notice me, it wails. Notice where it tells the truth, when it lies. Honor, rage, like a divine guest, or your beloved, soft-hearted child, the one who will not let you rest until you have made room in your house for one more stray cat, one more bastard child or thought unwanted, with nowhere else to take refuge. And the second poem I'll read is Minstrelry, dedicated to Paul Dunbar. And his way of writing poetry influenced me. And in writing this poem, I was thinking about being an Asian American woman writer and the ways that we are pressured to write sometimes. Minstrelry. My sisters and I write all day and night about silk, its delicate weft, golden peacocks and parrots, rush of wind through ink hair, waiting. Just the word chanted like a sutra, silk, 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 silk brings the poetry buyers to their knees, stoned on the musk of exotic suffering. Whatever we say, love, war, race, hate, if we wrap it in silk, they will take it home, unminding. It will live in their rooms, amid demons of jade, throw pillows, Chinese funeral papers, marble dust from the Taj Mahal. At night, we will wriggle out in ribbons of soft meat, like worms feasting. Minal Hajratwala. I'm going to spell that. M-I-N-A-L-H-A-J-R-A-T-W-A-L-A. She read two poems from her book, Bountiful Instructions for Enlightenment. Minal is also a writing coach. We move now to Mira Martin-Parker, a San Francisco-based poet whose work has appeared in Ziziva, the Istanbul Literary Review, North Dakota Quarterly, and other publications. Here's Mira. This poem was written as an imagined monologue in the voice of the 18th century German philosopher Immanuel Kant and is directed at his fellow German philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche, who famously couldn't stand Kant. The poem is intended to be Kant's somewhat patronizing response. As it is and ought to be. It must have been painful seeing the truth sprawled out on the page without her dress and powder. She must have looked so undone, under bright lights dissected, examined with cold fingers. In your eyes I had ravaged the maiden, and you kicked and screamed like a child. But really, in the end, even you must admit, it was your own fault for being curious, for straying from the crib late at night into father's office. You never should have opened the book and peeked inside at the naked photos of the universe. 
This next poem is about those times when we get so caught up in our own self-importance, we lose sight of who we are and where we came from. It contains a reference to the myth of Deucalion and Perha in Ovid's Metamorphosis. In this myth, the Titan goddess Themis is presented as counseling Deucalion and his wife Perha on how to repopulate earth following the great flood by throwing stones. Stone. It's a long way back, too far to remember. Sitting still, not yet torn to pieces, not yet an individual. But soon, throw them about, Themis cries, little people will emerge. And so tossed at random some sort of bacteria, then worms, fish, birds, animals, and finally man. It's beautiful in this world, but mostly unseen, unnoticed, motion, development, the cracking open of stones. So much time. Then there was you walking in your dark suit. You had a lot on your mind. The afternoon meeting, the conference call. You walked right by when she held out her cup. Please, sir, she cried, but you had forgotten. It's a long way back to being a stone, not yet torn to pieces, not yet a man. Poems by Mira Martin Parker. Mira also writes fiction. Her collection of short stories, The Carpet Merchant's Daughter, won the 2013 five-quarterly e-chapbook competition. You are listening to Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. My name is C.S. Song. Now, if you were with me at the beginning of the hour, you heard Matthew Zapruder talk a bit about how he approaches and thinks about poetry. Matthew is also a poet. His most recent collection is Father's Day. The following two poems you'll hear Matthew read come from his book, Sun Bear. The first one is called Poem for a Persian Singer, and the Persian singer is actually a musician named Del Cash, and I came across her music kind of by accident and fell in love with it. Poem for a Persian Singer. When I held the envelope full of music my friend had sent, I knew the time a little harmless loneliness would guide my hand, holding the circular polycarbonate plastic disc with the blue letters spelling her name into the machine had come. And I heard her voice inside me make deep ancient canyons only sunlight has ever known. Some time passes. I suddenly notice it is afternoon I am standing in the kitchen, holding a broom. She stops singing. Alone for a while, the music wanders. Then her voice returns. She says a word. It sounds like glacier. I'm pretty sure the song describes how it feels when something important does not happen. Most of the afternoon, still listening, I think, beautiful old stove. Many people we will never know place their hands on your dials, hoping things would never change. I cannot imagine what it is like for those who know they must stand together, thinking, for too long we have waited for fear which is not a guest to leave. They might shoot us, but we will stay here in the street until we are all, at last, older sisters to each other. This second poem is called Aubergine. Aubergine. I lie in bed, staring at the ceiling. Last night, before I fell asleep, I put the book on the floor. Looking down, I see its spine, with the golden, simple name of the old poet who might already be dead. Somehow he used ancient magic, everyone says we don't need anymore, to place inside me that perfect sadness. At last, after all the formal words of love, I could really imagine how terrible someday, not for 50 years or so, but still, for one of us to say goodbye it will be,
again fear that is almost seasickness, and also surely irrational hope. By that time I will in some way feel ready, through me moves, and then asleep again. I am wearing a dead rich man's black luxurious overcoat, gold buttons. It is snowing in a vast wooden hallway. I am not cold. Someone laughing says, just watch them learn the same lessons. He means my children I don't have yet. I touch the head of a very important black goat and wake up again. The clock radio says a small tremor shook some part of the desert no one lives in. Tiny drones, we are flown by what we do not know into blue election season. Inevitable spells are cast by warlocks. They move their hands and factories rise or stadiums into dust collapse. 8.10 a.m. December, San Francisco, rainy season. You pull on your boots. I call them purple. The label says aubergine. You leave for work and by a jolt of atavistic sadness electrified, I move once again to the impassive black desk to clock in for my eternal internship at the venerable multinational not-for-profit Lucid and Dreaming. Matthew Zapruder, poet, editor, translator, and associate professor of English at St. Mary's College of California. We conclude today's program with Camille Paglia, author, social critic, and professor of humanities and media studies at the University of the Arts in Philadelphia. Her books include Sexual Personae and Break, Blow, Burn. Camille Paglia reads 43 of the world's best poems. I spoke with Paglia shortly after Break, Blow, Burn came out, and here's what she told me about poetry and how to approach it. You refer at one point to uh, the fact that close reading... uh, refines emotion. I wonder Uh if you could elaborate on what that means to you. Uh I I think when you pay very close scrutiny to to an important work of art or to especially a great poem, which is is so so complex, that that you're actually opening up other parts of your brain, other other parts of the sensorium. Your, your, Your daytime identity sort of goes into dormancy and you are suddenly in in open emotional contact with that artist. I mean, I think that 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 the artist's deepest emotional life is revealed in the artwork and not through personal relationships. And that um, at, su- at such a moment, um, you, you, there's a, a kind of a, a marriage, kind of spiritual marriage between yourself and, and the artist. It's uh, I think one of the keenest, most incandescent moments that you can have in your life to truly open yourself. Uh, to work of art and allow it to play on you emotionally. How do you recommend people go about approaching uh, a poem that includes, for example, words that they might not understand in a certain context? Well, I, I, I feel about everything in art, uh, whether it's an artwork or, or film or, or poem, that you should just expose yourself to it. I, I, I'm a great believer in exposure. Um, uh, and this would be regarded as uh, almost incomprehensible by by all of these, you know, by our mandarins, you know, in the academy. Uh, but I believe in instinct um, and our natural responses. Uh, that uh, that I think that the rational mind um, works on material later, and that for the, the first moment you encounter an artwork, um, you should just let it sort of wash over you. And I say about a, a, the poem that you should make yourself completely still and blank. It's almost like Zen or something. Go completely blank. Just turn everything off, and let it let it happen to you, and let, listen to it, and let it work on you. And this is what the way I, I worked with the poems in the book. Is why it took five years to write, even though most of the book, or you know, deals with poems I had taught again and again in the classroom. Is that I have to um, let the thing happen to me, and I have to. I feel that some of my, my best ideas, my my best associations, okay, with with what I'm I'm reading or what I'm looking at in art, that it has to. It, it comes from someplace else. It's just this burbling up from from the dream life. I think that you know you have to if you're going to deal with art in any honest or or useful manner that you have to learn to turn off the rational side uh, of your mind and just uh, awaken all five senses 
and, and pretend you're dreaming as if you're dreaming while awake. Right? And then later on, you know, is the, if one has to write on a, a poem for a classroom project or something like that, you know, then later you, you know, you can, um, you can order, you know, you, or, you can organize your impressions into a uh, coherent form. Okay, but I think that, I think that is a completely later stage. That's why mm. I'm a great, I'm a great jotter. I jot, jot, jot. And, you know, I, I jot on pieces of paper. I jot in margins. I, and I, these are just things, flashes that come across my mind about what I'm looking at or something else. I could be driving. I could be doing the dishes and, and things just, just sort of, those are like comets. You know that just go across, or, or meteor showers, maybe. Okay, that that seem to like flare up and then and to burn out. And I feel you have to catch them. Got to catch them, catch them, catch them. Okay. And then it's later on that I, as a as a critic, um, then um, you know form them into these structures, which you know become my essays and become my books. Okay. But to me, that's a later process. That's the author of, among other books, Break, Blow, Burn. Camille Paglia reads forty-three of the world's best poems. And that concludes today's dip or dive into the world of poetry. I want to thank the Pacifica Radio Archives, the source of some of what you heard today. And that program first aired last April 21st. And this is CS, suggesting the important thing is not to stop questioning, and we hope you'll join us next time. Against the Grain is produced by Sasha Lilly and C.S. Song. You can visit us online at againstthegrain.org, where you'll find on-demand and downloadable audio, resources, and more. You can check us out on Facebook at Against the Grain Radio, and you can follow us on Twitter at Radio Against.